Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let the church of Jesus Christ say, In 2018, a sad-looking, emaciated gray cat showed up on our back deck. We don't know where she came from, whether she was a stray, abandoned by her owners, or whether she was just a feral cat. There she was, on our back deck. Is there a picture? Why this cat chose us is still a holy mystery to us. But she did. And I, being the son of a cat lover, put food out for the animal. It looked pathetic and thin, and I just couldn't ignore her. Then I made a little bed for it, tucked away under an eave in case it rained. And every day, the cat would appear on our deck, or maybe on our front porch. She was very friendly, and she allowed our young kids to pick her up repeatedly in the way small children pick up cats, both arms around the stomach, full lift. She didn't scratch or bite, so we kept feeding her, welcoming her back. In no time, the cat plumped up a bit, and she looks very healthy and beautiful now. And since the cat appeared out of nowhere and adopted us and chose us without any merit of our own, we decided to name her Grace. I'm a pastor, okay? Of course we named her something churchy. And a month after she started visiting us, Grace retreated into a corner of our garage where she promptly gave birth to a litter of three kittens, which were the absolute exquisite joy of my young children's lives. Two of the kittens would end up at a distant relative's house, and we decided to keep One, and since the kitten was birthed by grace, we named her 
Torah, because again, I'm a pastor, and because we believe that God's law came out of God's grace. But the reason I'm telling you about grace is because of this. Grace is a kind and loving cat to us. But as she roams our cul-de-sac, as she does every day, she is a terribly violent predator. Rabbits, chipmunks, squirrels, birds, mice, Grace goes to war against her prey. She lies in wait on our back deck, surveying the wooded yard, watching for movement. Ever vigilant, she lopes between our property and the neighbors in a loose circuit every night, watching for movement, stalking nests, waiting for a moment to strike. She is merciless towards juvenile rabbits and appears not to care that it was a baby bird, Grace, that she killed. And then to top it all off, to my boy's delight and my wife's chagrin, she brings her prey back to our back door where she leaves it in a pile, sometimes dead, sometimes still alive. The pretty cat with a nice churchy name turns out is pretty brutal and vindictive toward her enemies. And church, I've seen the proof. Grace, the cat, at war. By the church's reckoning of time, the first Sunday after Pentecost Sunday is typically called Trinity Sunday. It's always the case that on this particular Sunday, the first Sunday after Pentecost, we devote the Sunday to the praise of God as Trinity, as one singular God essence, but with three consubstantial God persons coexisting in perfect love and harmony. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, we sang this morning. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we sing other times. We've heard part of a gorgeous poem from Psalm 8, or Proverbs 8, excuse me, that portrays divine wisdom as a partner with God in fashioning the world, a master worker who helps God mark out the foundations of all creation and who daily calls out her voice so that God's creation might listen. We heard an equally gorgeous snippet from Romans chapter 5 where the apostle assures us that because of Jesus we have peace with God and so in that peace we find ourselves living out our lives on the factory floor of hope where even our most terrible loss and pain is subsumed by the love of God. We heard Jesus in the Gospels in one of my favorite parts of the Gospel of John warning his disciples just hours before he would be arrested that right now they can't handle anything else just yet. They've heard too much, they've seen too much, and they would need time to understand more. They would need God's Spirit to help them understand more. They would need divine assistance over and over and over again to remember what Jesus said to them and to help them understand more down the road. The texts for this Trinity Sunday are independently gorgeous, but none of them really leap out to me as an obvious choice to talk about the Trinity. And in fact, this is my tenth 
Trinity Sunday preaching, and I'm never quite sure what the lectionary editors hope will take place on Trinity Sunday in churches who observe it. Am I supposed to let you all stay up late past your bedtimes and explain the Trinity to you like perhaps a parent might awkwardly do with a pre-adolescent child to explain the human body and human reproduction as neither party really makes eye contact and both wonder when the conversation is going to be over? Is my job to go to the blackboard and draw out diagrams and charts and explain to you a science of how a spiritual being with an undivided essence is also three persons with distinct substances and works? Shall I dig around in Paul's science kit and end up committing heresy in public by trying to use some physical metaphor like water or the sun or a three-leaf clover to explain a spiritual mystery that resists explanation. As Christians, we affirm this core understanding of God. We believe that God is one and that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, creator, redeemer, sustainer, the lover, the beloved, and love itself. We praise God as triune every Sunday. Every week we come to God with our earnest prayers of confession. We open the scriptures to hear the incarnate word speak to us. We open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit who fills us and guides us and leads us and comforts us. God as one and God as Trinity is our basic operational understanding of who God is, who God always has been. When God brooded over the raw stuff of the universe and spoke into the vastness of the cosmos to call forth light, God was one, God was Trinity. When God called forth to Moses from the flames of the bush which blazed but were not consumed and told Moses his name was I am, that I am, God was one, God was Trinity. When God descended upon Mount Sinai in cloud and majesty and awe, announcing his instructions and establishing his people, God was one, God was Trinity. When Mary heard an angel say she would bear a child who would be called the anointed and who would be God incarnate, God was one, God was Trinity. When Christ, the word made flesh, suffered and bled and breathed out, it is finished, God was one, God was Trinity. When Christ was raised and stood before his disciples, before a cloud took him from their sight, and when in wind and flame the Spirit enveloped the church, God was one, God was Trinity. Church, when we say God is triune, we are declaring a mystery that has always been the case. We are saying this is who God was before all creation, who God is in the midst of our existence, and who God will be when linear time dissipates into the kingdom of God. One God, three persons, blessed Trinity. Happy Trinity Sunday to you, church. And in light of this, I have some really great news for you. You are not at war with the holy triune God. Turn to your neighbor and tell them they are not at war with the holy triune God. And some of you are thinking now, well, that's great. That's great. I I'm not at war with the holy triune God. Great. I mean, I came to church today for good news, and now I have it. I'm not really sure what it means, 
but the preacher said it with energy and joy, so it must be good. I'm still not really sold on this idea of God being one but also three, but I guess I'm glad I'm not at war with this God I don't quite understand. You are not at war with the holy triune God. I read from today's assigned reading from Romans chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are not at war with the holy triune God. At least that's what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 5. We have peace with God. Unlike Grace the Cat, God is not loping through the neighborhoods of humanity, wandering into your backyard in order to go to war with you. Our relationship with God is not one of prey and predator. We are not at war with God. We have peace with God. I don't know how you showed up to worship today. I'm not sure what big, heavy bag of sorrow or concern or anxiety you brought with you today, but I suspect that many of you came to church today and you're carrying something that you're just tired of carrying. Maybe it's been too long since your body felt like itself and you're really finding it difficult to make small talk with your friends because they seem to be doing just fine. Maybe it's been one thing after another in a series of crashing dominoes that began with COVID and have now cascaded into your job, your relationship with your kids, your relationship with your spouse or your ex. Last week, your car started leaking oil, and today your basement is flooded, and you're just feeling exhausted. Maybe you're on week 15 of recovery from surgery, and you're really frustrated because your recovery time feels very long and far more painful than others who just bounced right back. Maybe you've tried and tried to become pregnant, but it's not happening, and you don't know how much more disappointment your body can handle. Maybe you've lost another job, and the bills are piling up, and you're not sure what's going to happen tomorrow, and it all feels like too much. Maybe your kid is finally off to college or beyond, but they're making unwise decisions, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it but hope and pray and love them. I don't know what outsized worry you've dragged here with you today. I'm not even sure if you know that you brought it with you, but there it is next to you in the pew, biding its time until you leave, and then it will occupy your every waking thought. Whether you know it or not, and whether you believe it or not, we come to this place of worship each week to commune with God, to let our busted-up spirits mingle with the God who we believe made heaven and earth. And so no matter who you are and what you've experienced, no matter what you've gone through or what you are going through, no matter who hurt you or what you've lost, here you have gathered alongside other human bodies to sit and pray and sing and hope. And as we do, we do so in the presence of the living God. And so it would make sense that from time to time we ought to assess 
our relationship to this God. I mean, we're here to commune with God, to cultivate a relationship with God. We're here to give praise to this God. We might as well wonder a bit about what God thinks about us and what we think about God. This month marks my 10th year of full-time ordained pastoral ministry, and over the past decade, it seems to me that the primary barometer, the primary metric that we use, whether we want to or not, the metric we use to evaluate our sense of God is our lived experience, the things that we have been through, the sorrow or joy that we have experienced. If you're here and your bank account feels reasonably full, your family is reasonably healthy, your job is reasonably secure, and maybe you're feeling just a little bit like God might be on your side and you're so pleased, you might even say that you're feeling, quote, blessed. But if you're here and things are stretched tight and you've got this mid-grade anxiety about everything— relationships in your life feel rocky and cold, and you're not making enough money at your jobs, well, maybe you're feeling like God isn't on your side. Maybe God is out to get you. Maybe God is punishing you for something you did or didn't do. You don't feel blessed at all. The circumstances in your life lead you to believe that maybe you're feeling cursed, like nothing you can do will ever bear positive results. It can be especially hard to affirm God's goodness on Sunday when on Monday we're experiencing pain or suffering or bitterness. And when things start to go wrong, when the dominoes fall, when our health declines or we're facing down whatever crisis is coming next, it's especially easy for us to begin adopting a portrait of God as one that looks a bit like Grace the Cat, benevolent on the outside, cruel on the inside, nice to some creatures, but violent and vengeful towards others. We can start to imagine that God is out to get us. God is doing whatever this is to us for some reason. Like the three so-called counselors who visit the suffering Job, it's very easy for us to try to rationalize and explain and justify why things are going wrong. We crave answers, we yearn for an explanation, and so we can often drag God to court and demand he tell us why he is doing this to us. We imagine that we are at war with God, that somehow the sin we committed years ago is now finally being punished by God, that God has perched himself in our backyard, stalking us, waiting to pounce on us should we do something wrong. But church, this is not the image of God given to us in the scriptures. This is not the image of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. This is not the image of God the Apostle Paul gives us in today's reading from Romans 5. We are not waging a war of sin versus goodness in God's territory. We are not at war with God at all. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. And if that's so then the difficult times and circumstances of our life are not God punishing us, testing us, or taking revenge on us. If we have peace with God, then God is not out to get us. Instead, 
through Christ, we are drawn by the Holy Spirit into the extravagant love of God. A love that is stronger than any suffering, more durable than any pain. Because of Jesus, we are given a fresh infusion of hope that despite all the evidence to the contrary, God's love will be the final word in the cosmic story. Not death, not judgment, not hell. Because of Jesus, we find the love of God seeping into the deepest grave and the most lonely and forsaken places. When Dr. Kate Bowler was 35 years old, she was a tenured faculty member at Duke Divinity School where she was the leading researcher of the prosperity gospel in American churches. That idolatrous belief that God rewards you with health and wealth if you're faithful and takes them away if you are not. In 2015, having recently welcomed a newborn son into her family, Dr. Bowler was stricken with stomach pains and ended up discovering that she had stage four cancer and the prognosis was not good. She writes about her diagnosis and struggle in her memoir, which was called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies That I've Loved. She writes about the many, many, many people who visited her through her email inbox to explain to her why she was sick, why she was suffering, who became versions of Job's counselors to tell her that this is happening for a reason, you just don't know what it is yet. But she concludes, it's not. Everything happens, period. Full stop. We experience things that are absolutely terrible sometimes, and it's not for any other reason than we live in a brutal and harsh world where such things are possible. Here's Dr. Bowler talking about her experience. events that are wonderful and terrible, gorgeous and tragic. I can't reconcile the contradiction, except that I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. Life is so beautiful, and life is so hard. Today, I am doing quite well. The immunotherapy drugs appear to be working, and we are watching and waiting with scans. I hope I will live a long time. I hope I will live long enough to embarrass my son and to watch my husband lose his beautiful hair. And I think I might. But I am learning to live and to love without counting the cost, without reasons and assurances that nothing will be lost. Life will break your heart. And life may take everything you have and everything you hope for. But there is one kind of prosperity gospel that I believe in. I believe that in the darkness, even there, there will be beauty and there will be love. And every now and then, it will feel like more than enough. Thank you. 
broken world where terrible and wonderful things take place, but we also live in a world in which we are in a relationship with love itself, where no matter the exquisite quality of our pain and agony, we live out our lives in the backyard of the God who is not at war with us, but who is with us no matter what, for however long. And all this because of what we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul concludes today's reading from Romans 5 by saying, we also rejoice when we suffer, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope, hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Today is Trinity Sunday. And I speak to you in the name of the God of love, whom we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.